0: hello and welcome to this week's episode of banter on the parkway i am your host brian from bannersontheparkway.com and i am joined as always uh by uh, folks just imagine billy corgan except without the singing ability, but with a lot more charm. I'll give you that. You're not quite as off-putting as as Billy
1: is. Is that fair, Brad? Um, well, I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, musicians are always known for being a little eccentric, but he kind of has taken that to a, a level not quite needed. I mean, to the point where I think you ostracized everybody else in your band and also, like, the people related to you. Maybe you've leaned into it a little bit too much.
0: Right. I mean, two of us are still on this podcast with you. Braden heard you were going to be on today, decided to forego it. So, but there, there is one other brother you've not ostracized. And that's Joel. Um, How close are you, Joel, to, to being ostracized?
2: Oh man, I'm just sending good money after bad at this point in time. Like I feel committed and I just, you know, it's tough to get away from like, I don't know if you guys play poker, but I don't. But it seems like if you bet a lot, and you're probably going to lose the hand, but you've sent so much money into it, you feel committed. Uh, that's basically where I am with the whole Brad experience right now.
1: So is this a podcast or an intervention?
2: It's a roast. This is
0: just catharsis for Brian and I.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say,
0: um, to be honest, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot else. <laughs> what about you guys? All right, well, we'll catch you next week. Um, Xavier was in action twice this week. They had a pair of home games this week, the the first of which was always going to be the more important of them. Um, Xavier and Providence came in tied, uh, top the Big East standings with Marquette, and it was Xavier 85, Providence 83 in overtime. So, uh, Brad, this was a game that Xavier was in last year and could not finish off due to Jared Bynum. This year, they were able to finish it off. Uh, what did we learn <clears throat> other than Xavier is capable of beating Providence this year?
1: Um, we learned that Jared Bynum has kind of forgotten how to shoot a basketball between this year and last year. Uh, he glassed in the three-pointer that forced overtime. And I suspect if he's being honest, he would admit that that was not the intent of that shot. Uh, then Ed Cooley, is he a good coach? Ran a look for Jared Bynum, who was two of five at that point, to get a look behind the arc to end the game. Um, if he'd have had somebody scalding hot, like, I don't know, I'll just throw some numbers out there. Maybe six or seven from behind the arc. I might've considered getting him the ball, but I don't coach Providence. Um I think the other thing we learned is that Xavier's rotation just is not going to get deeper. Um, it is now the five starters and Desmond Claude, and I suspect that when Zach Freeman come back, comes back, it'll be the five starters, Desmond Claude and Jerome Hunter. Uh, Cesar Edwards played six minutes. Um, I'm sure he did something while he was out there, other than accrue a crew foul. Kiki Tandy came in and played three minutes and missed two shots. Neither of them did anything that, would have you know, made anyone cry out for more playing time for them. Um, it's basically just going to come down to how well-conditioned Xavier's top six and later top seven are, because we're not going any deeper than that. What a game, though. Man, that was a great game of basketball.
0: I feel like one of the talking points from this game is the fact that Xavier played 45 minutes of basketball, turned the ball over five times as a team. No one had more than one. Um, I think when you are looking at what the keys, well, when we were looking at what the keys to beating Providence were last week, we said taking care of the ball because Providence is not a defense that forces a lot of turnovers. And Xavier players, apparently were all listening to our podcast last week because we were the only people who brought that up. Um, And they took it to heart. So that was nice to see that um, we do have that level of influence over what happens on the court. Uh, Joel, you were going to say something?
2: I just think um, a lot of people focus on the one for nine for Sule Boom from behind the arc. Nine assists and one turnover while playing 41 minutes is really impressive. And then down the stretch, he had a couple of real tough buckets for Xavier. I think he scored five in the last two and a half minutes overtime. Uh, he did miss a free throw during that time, which I don't know if the 41 minutes of play leading up to that was the issue or if he just needs to practice some when he's tired. I'll check my Twitter mentions, but uh, even when he is not shooting the ball particularly well, he's finding ways to uh, be super influential on the game. Uh, The other thing I think bears pointing out is Jerome Hunter completely pocketed Bryce Hopkins. Hopkins shot three of 14 on the game. Um, All three of his made buckets were while Jerome was out. all four of his made free throws were while Jerome was in. So if you prefer free throws to buckets, Jerome's your guy. Uh, Hopkins still had a decent game. He went for 10-13-5 with no turnovers. But um, it took him 14 shots to get there. And he was visibly frustrated when uh, Hunter was on him. Just an incredible performance in his uh, first start of the season. And it, it was what Xavier needed. because. In a game that goes to overtime, if you give up one more bucket in regulation, I think you lose.
0: That does. Yeah. (laughs) Let me Google. The math checks out. (laughs) Um, Right. So uh, that was a huge factor, I think, as well. Um, But anyway, that was uh, Xavier's big win um, on Wednesday. And then you kind of feared maybe there would be a letdown as uh, they come to the weekend. Um, They took on St. John's at home, and it was not a letdown. Uh, Xavier won 96-71 in a game that uh, might not even have been as close as the 25-point margin of victory indicates. Um, I mean, Brad, did we learn anything about Xavier this game, or did we just learn that the Mike Anderson experience is probably over at St. John's?
1: I think that one, and that kind of disappoints me because I think Mike Anderson is a decent coach, but if he is, and I know people debate that, he's not getting the best out of this group. Um, Andre Curbelo, what a train wreck that guy is. Um, really, until the game was over, he had no influence at all, but he demands the ball um, and then shoots it really badly. I, I don't know. I mean, St. John's is just is just not very good. Um, and Xavier, again, this game really didn't go that deep. Cesar Edwards did get 10 minutes. Camp Kraft got 10 minutes, and I thought he um, was impressive. Byron Larkin likes the way that he plays. I listened to this game. Um, and he gets on the defensive glass really well, and he certainly isn't afraid to put the ball up. Uh, I thought Edwards was okay. Uh, he just needs to actually do something. He kind of drifts through games. Um, and I think the one thing that this game confirmed is that Kiki Tandy definitely should have transferred two years ago. Um, seems like a good kid and everything, but he is just not, in the opinion of anybody who has coached him to this point, uh, a Big East-level basketball player. Uh, he just he can't get it done, um, which is a shame given all the hype that he came in with. But this year he's shooting – Thirty five percent inside the arc and twenty eight percent outside the arc, and just kind of exists through games. Um, I was pleased to see that Deontay Miles is still alive, so that was nice. Um, he he is still hanging around out there. Uh, when he transfers out next year, I think that it will be to probably a an upper low major or a mid major where his defense will play and he can rebound and get stick backs. But again, X looked. I mean, it's hard to argue with a team that scores 1.32 points per possession. And other than kind of letting down at the end of the game on defense, this was a really solid performance. And it looked a lot like St. John's was scoring late because Xavier just didn't care to stop him anymore. Um, And even Sean Miller wasn't too pressed by it, it didn't seem.
2: Yeah, I mean, Xavier had 32 made buckets and 26 assists. The shot 15 of 28 from behind the arc. Des Claude was three of three from deep. Uh, just a comprehensive beat down. Uh, like you said, the defense kind of quit defending uh, later than it usually does, which was nice. Um, Cause the opening tip is when that usually happens. Uh, Curbelo plays every game. Like it's an open gym and there's only 10 people there. Uh, just grabs the ball and blindly attacks. Um, I don't know. I don't know why I'm so vexed about somebody on the other team, but it seems like there's something there that could be good at basketball. But instead, he's got one speed, which is as fast as he can go, and one guy he's looking to get shots for, which is him. And it just – he's – He'll he'll win games for both teams when he's playing, and um, I guess never up, never in. But he will not stop shooting, will not stop driving, will not stop throwing the ball all over the court. You know, a forty-two percent usage rate in this one, despite an eighty-six O rating. That's just a dude who, like you said, he demands the ball every time, and then uh, it's a surprise even to him what ends up happening.
0: He's not. Yeah, I mean, Cabello, he's a weird he's kind of a weird case, I guess. He was the Big Ten Sixth Man of the Year as a freshman in Illinois. And then when he stepped into a role that was a little more prominent, uh, he promptly played himself back into a role that was not prominent at all because of how he performed. Um, and then he transferred to. St. John's, where the only two times uh, he's put up – well, the only time he's put up an O rating over 100 against anyone decent was against Syracuse um, on November 22nd. The teams he's put up 100 O ratings against since then are LIU, DePaul, (laughs) Florida State, and Butler, uh, which is just a who's who of teams who aren't going to play any postseason basketball after they get knocked out of their conference tournament this March. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't know about <laughs> what is going on with Andre Corbello. Um, and that probably <laughs> is a large group of people that may even include Andre Corbello. Um, but this was, yeah, um, it was a smackdown. Uh, there's not a lot else to say other than, uh, St. John's was without David Jones, uh, because of the passing of his father, which, uh, was sad news and, um, I don't, really know if it affected the way they played they had travel problems too so there were things st john's could point at and say this was not an ideal situation for them um playing without one of their best players after his dad died and you know getting to the arena two hours before the game but they also did get blown out by 25 in a game that never really felt like it was in doubt after the first media timeout um, so looking around the country, um, we had uh, a huge uh, <laughs> incident of, uh, well, I don't know. Is this college kids being the worst or college administrators being the worst? Um, we're going to decide right now because they are both groups of people that I think have the capability of being the worst. And we've just got to sort out who's being the worst in this incident. It's, of course, the Orange Crush versus Iowa. Uh, Brad, why don't you run us through that uh, situation and then just give the final verdict on who it is being the worst here, if it's the administrators or the kids.
1: So the Orange Crush is Illinois traveling support. Well it's their it's their student section and they travel to a conference game each year. So it came out early this week they were like hey Iowa canceled all of our tickets to the Iowa game. They were going to show up uh, en masse I believe they had 200 seats in a block, which is a really good traveling student section to a game. They released a big thing on Twitter. Look at us. We just want to go support our team in this. Cow- I believe they used the word cowardly. Iowa administration found out who we were and canceled our tickets. And, of course, because it's Twitter, uh, nobody dug into it at all. And since they got their story out first, uh, they initially had a whole ton of support behind them. Iowa, rather than deciding to just let that ride, said, actually what happened is that the Orange Crush registered as a boys and girls club from Iowa to buy bulk tickets at a discount rate and represented themselves as something that they weren't when Iowa got wind of that is then when they canceled the tickets. The Orange Crush initially said, what? No, I don't even know what boys and girls are. I'm a college kid. I just want to come here for my basketball team. And then finally they were like, yeah, that's what we did. Um, I want to say here, I usually side with the students because it's college and you're supposed to do goofy stuff. And I think if you sign up as some other kind of group, uh, it's acceptable. But, you know, when you're taking advantage of the fact that Iowa is not going to deny cut rate tickets to, uh, Boys and Girls Club, who help out disadvantaged youth, I think you put yourselves then on the wrong side of the who is the being bad, the bad person here teeter-totter. So for this time, I'm going to go with Iowa, though not Fran McCaffrey, because I'm sure whatever he would have done would have been the worst in this situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Um, So there you have it, folks. The college kids were the ones being the worst in this situation. Uh, there will be no further debate. Uh, we had an incident where EIU's Kenyon Hughes tried, or Hodges, sorry, uh, tried to punch a fan. Uh, Brad, did he have it coming? I've not seen anything about this at all. So you're going to have to walk even me through this. Um,
1: so anyway, go ahead. I, I have no idea. Uh, the clip is bizarre, though <laughs> Kenyon Hughes in the clip is very clearly quite irate. Uh, I'm guessing he was getting taunted. Um, he just kind of took a step over and uh, he cracked a Linwood, Lindenwood fan. Uh, a good one. I think anybody who has ever played at even a moderately high level has wanted to punch a fan. Um I can remember a stint that I had as a point guard, which did not go really well, that made me want to punch some of my own team's fans um, because I was not feeling a great deal of support from them uh, given that they were outright booing. I don't think... It could be that they were just trying to say my name and it gotten confused. But, yeah, so Kenyon Hughes hit a Lindenwood fan. Uh, EIU said that they are going to handle this internally because they value good sportsmanship. Um, And I guess... Punching fans crosses the line between good and bad sportsmanship. I'll leave that to you guys for a release. Is is punching fans bad sportsmanship?
2: I want to just talk about the video here for a second. Um, So I think he's the team's leading scorer, and I think he pronounces H-O-D-G-E-S Hodges, actually. And they have the ball. And he wanders off. Then his and I know like he's not a golden gloves boxer, but he just like opens his arms as wide as he can and does like a weird pivot, almost like he's trying to um overcook some discipline on an unruly child. The person I don't know the person he swings at. I don't know Kenyon Hughes Hodges either, but it's just, a, it's a bad cut. And, like, he he takes a big old swing and a miss at the dude. He stands up and claps as soon as the technical is. For some reason, he wasn't ejected from the game. I might have uh, been tempted to throw him out Were I, the official, who stood there and watched it and assessed the technical foul. And then, uh, you know, business as usual, his, his teammates come around and, like, chest tap him, like, you're okay, man. Who among us, right? <laughs> um. Yeah, it's just bizarre, and I'll be interested to see what happens because my guess is it's going to be some Coach K-style indefinite suspension, meaning that he's going to have to come in at the first media timeout instead of during the game. But uh, I guess EIU is getting some headlines now, whereas they wouldn't have ever before. But it's just a weird thing. It reminds me of, I think, Marcus Smart went into the stands a few years back. Well, more than a few years back now, uh, just time speeds up when you're my age. And I uh, took a cut at a fan who was racially abusing him. Just judging from the superficial demographics, I don't think that's what this one was. I think he just got PO'd at something he heard and decided that uh, he was going to try to chin-check the dude.
1: Just, yeah, so it is it's a tragically bad punch. The other thing is, EIU scores during this, and they count the bucket.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. And he's walking away and doing that. Does the bucket
0: count, Symbol? Like, did, that went down, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite part. His number 11 like, but I still get my points.
2: Just a, <laughs> yeah. just a real then, fever dream of a trip down the court,
0: there. <laughs> Here's the thing is, I mean, I'm not a fighter. You guys know this. But anytime you take a swing at someone as your butt is going away from that person, you're probably not gonna land a solid blow. He appears to whiff entirely here. And I'm gonna say he was going at him with an open hand, actually. I don't think that was a punch. I think that was a Will Smith style slap <laughs> that he was going to. So um well the fan, like immediately in light, of fact, in light of the fact the hand was open, I do think the punishment should be less severe. Uh, because I, that's I, that's how I operate
1: I think some kudos to the fan for not telling really, the fan stands up and points like did anybody else just see that like I, I you know usually he appears to be the same age and usually when two young men of that age start swinging at each other it takes a little bit to stop but he seems almost surprised that it happened too he's like I think that guy tried to hit me I thought I could yell yeah. at basketball
0: players to car loss.
2: They're not gonna leave the floor.
1: <laughs> like, Bean, like the over there. Like I get buckets. That counts, right? That's that's me. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's run that play <laughs> next time, down. <Dad.
0: laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, I think the guy who swung at, dodged. I don't know. Anyway, um, there's no question who's being the worst in this situation. It's Jim Bayheim. Because he's uh he's throwing a good old fashioned weepathon this week about how Pitt and Wake uh, and then he dragged Miami into it uh, have bought their teams this year um and poor persecuted Jim Boeheim um they made the NIL rules and then said Syracuse couldn't participate which oh. is sad yeah so let's run down a list of coaches here Joel and I'm just gonna ask if each of these coaches has ever been charged by the NCAA with a failure of institutional control. So let's go ahead and start at Pitt with Jeff Cable. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, um, he ran into a little trouble at Oklahoma, but uh, his, his assistant was the one who was um, supposedly paying people. Um, let's go Steve Forbes at Wake. Again, I can't recall. Oh, interesting interesting Jim Laranega at Miami I don't think so I okay. I will
2: say Jim Laranega the most superfluous
0: tilde maybe in the history of all of them yeah but that is not an NCAA tra- oh, Jim Beheim of Syracuse oh uh,
2: that seems like the kind of thing that he would be charged with also and I just want to throw this out here because it somehow gets glossed over. Jim Beheim did kill a guy.
0: I don't know that we go after Jim Beheim for that one, because it does seem like
1: that was more a failure of vehicular yeah. control than a failure of program control, though.
0: Well, I don't know that it was a failure of vehicular control. I think they ruled that the guy was in a roadway. Um. Police but statements I, said he was, he was off the side of the road. Anyway, um, so, Jim Beheim has been charged with failure to, uh, sorry, failure to create an atmosphere of compliance. Um, so he's bellyaching about all these guys who have created created an atmosphere of compliance um, throughout their careers. So I don't know, and Jim. He, and Era. he
2: didn't. Um, When Syracuse's biggest booster was flying in a top recruit to watch their game that week, so kind of a pot kettle situation between the guys who promote atmospheres of compliances and don't run over pedestrians, and Jim Beheim.
0: Also, Syracuse is just not nationally relevant right now, um, because of Jim Beheim. So, I think. This all comes back on him. Um, I mean, Miami's always going to be nationally relevant because it's Miami, and what college kid doesn't want to go to Miami? Uh, Syracuse is a little harder of a sell, and it would be an easier sell if you know you knew you were going to like play man defense and live somewhere where it's not snowing all the time. Or when
1: that? Just- he yeah. he apologizes to Pitt and Wake. But because he's Jim Bayheim, in that apology, he's like, but Miami, those guys, right. like, what, what a, I about said something not safe for work there. What a rude thing to do. Like, well, he, he's like, I shouldn't have said all that about these two teams because Miami, screw those guys. I'm like, come on, man.
0: Here's the thing about his apology is he, he whines that they bought their teams. And then his apology is about something he never said at all. He's like, well, I never meant to imply that they broke NIL rules, which is not what he originally implied. He implied that the deck deck was being stacked against him, which he never walked back. So I don't know, Jim Beheim, retire, please. Um, but um, there were a couple of incidents this weekend that I think generated uh, positive headlines. Um Purdue lost this weekend to Indiana uh, post-game because some beat writers are the worst. Uh, couldn't be our beat writer. Uh, shout out to Adam Baum, who would never ask this question. Uh, somebody asked Braden Smith, who is uh, Purdue's, one of Purdue's guards, about a clutch turnover he had in that game. Just like, hey, Braden, how do you feel about throwing the game away? Um, and Zach Eady, after Smith kind of, walked through his thought process took the mic and um explained how you know there were a lot of plays in the game where they didn't do it right and uh it wasn't fair to really go after smith like that the one though that i think um we can circle back to college kids being the worst was max Sholga, who plays for utah state he is ukrainian and in their game at colorado state this weekend Uh, The Colorado State students were chanting Russia at him as he shot free throws, obviously referencing the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Um, I mean, people have gone, oh, it's college kids. They, you know, do dumb stuff. And I'll be honest, participated in some chants in college that I would not (laughs) now. But uh, I feel like. Could
2: have been interpreted as insensitive.
0: I feel like we probably would have drawn the line somewhere short of here. (laughs) Um, but anyway, he basically Colorado state apologized on behalf of their fan base. Who knows if any of those fans are actually sorry they did it, but, um, he was basically like, yeah, it upset me, but if they are sorry, I accept the apology and, you know, hope that we all learn something from this. So he was content to move on, um. I do remember an incident probably, well, 20 years ago now where Maryland was playing at Virginia and Virginia's fans were chanting at Juan Dixon about the fact his parents were dead. And um, Juan Dixon said afterward he wanted to go into the stands and uh, quote, snatch some of them up. So Max took a different tack than Juan Dixon. Not that Juan Dixon took the wrong tack because totally fair. Um, But anyway. Good for you, Max, and, uh, you know, could have been ugly. Could have been ugly. He took the high road. So as uh, we come toward kind of the business end of the Big East season, Joel, we're in the month of February, uh, which sucks, as you all know. Um, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know already. Um, What is – how is the Big East title race shaping up here? I mean, how many – contenders are we really looking at right now in the Big East standings Xavier and Marquette are tied at the top both at 11 and 2 um is there anyone else who you see being able to join the race or is it just a shootout between Xavier and Marquette for the last month and change of the regular season
2: uh, it's mostly a shootout between Xavier and Marquette for the last month and change of the regular season but there are a couple uh couple of dark horses who have kept themselves in it uh the first of those is the the longest of the long shots is providence uh bart torvik says they've got about a two percent chance of taking a solo title and uh ten percent chance of getting any share uh they're they're nine and three the other long shot is creighton who's also nine and three um Providence is one of those teams. They usually beat who they're supposed to beat, And then they stay in games against uh, the tough teams. Their schedule is favorable in the sense that they have more home games left than, uh, than roadies. They host Creighton, Villanova, Xavier, and Seton Hall. They also host Georgetown. I'm giving them that one. Um, If they lose to Georgetown, I'll go back in time and delete this article that I posted. But, uh, they're going to have to defend the home court, and they've got a real tough trip to UConn, who, uh, who's who been inconsistent but I think is still dangerous. Creighton, um, they have to travel to Providence. They have to travel to Villanova, who's looking resurgent. Uh, and they still got home games against UConn and Marquette, scattered among other teams that they should just beat without really thinking about it too much. Uh, the way they have been playing recently, I I mean, you can make a case that maybe Creighton wins out. Uh, They've started to look like the Final Four contender that they were touted to be at the beginning of the season. Um, Ryan Kulkbrenner's finally taking those Z-packs or whatever gets you back from mono, and uh, they're looking real tough. So I think they probably overplay their projections. I think um, they're a solid third. Right now, uh, Kempom and Torvik basically don't delineate between them and. uh, Providence but I think Creighton is trending up hard and then Xavier and Marquette are kind of uh, locked in it at the top and I think this is where Xavier's loss to uh, DePaul really comes back and bites them because um, they still have the tougher games left in the season they got to travel to Marquette they host Villanova who's starting to look good and then they go to Seton Hall and don't think Seton Hall's as good a team as Xavier is, obviously, but uh, on their home court, they can be a tough out, and then God only knows what might happen at Providence. Up to including literal acts of God to delay the game long enough to keep the Friars in it. Um, you know, Xavier's got their work cut out for them, but uh, Marquette goes to UConn tonight. Um if they can steal that game, I think that they have one hand on the trophy already. Uh, if they lose there, it's still pretty wide open. They've got to travel to Creighton, which I think is going to be tough. But um, I think if they lose to uh, to UConn tonight, you might be looking at that uh, February 15th and the Ides of February, as it were, as being uh, Xavier versus Marquette. To, uh, to firmly put themselves in the driver's seat of the Big East title race. I think whoever wins that game um, has a chance if they, if they hold serve and kind of play to the projections the rest of the way to uh, put themselves on the top line when it comes conference tournament time. But, uh, you know, the Big East can be unpredictable, as we saw when Xavier went to Chicago and laid an egg against Paul. And the, the title odds change every time a game is played. So I think it's it's tight between Marquette and Xavier. I think the way Creighton has been playing recently, I think you'll only see their, uh, their projections go up. I think they're going to play themselves right back into it coming into the last week or so. And uh, it's hard to count out Providence because they're the luckiest program in the nation. That's statistically verifiable fact. Don't look it up. And, uh, you know, things t- tend to bounce their way. They do um, do a good job at overplaying their talent level and keeping themselves in games. And um, I'm hesitant to entirely write them
0: out at this point in time. Okay. Um, and then, so just reviewing, it's not going to be Georgetown? No. Um, okay. no what not. is the highest number of teams that... Biblical miracle for Georgetown
2: to be relevant.
0: What's the highest number of wins that Torvik's projections put them at? Obviously, they're not going to get to 500 because that's mathematically impossible at this point. Um, do they project you in four games of any of the projections?
2: Let's get the old Big East Torvik page. By the way, um, I recommend everybody pay the. The 20 bucks to Ken Palm every year, if you really want to understand what you're looking at. But if you're stingy, uh, Bart Torvik has a great website, and uh, you should all be familiar with the tools that he's got. Um, It looks like based on 50,000 simulations of the season, there are a handful of them in which Georgetown wins six games, two tenths of a percent. They win six games, 2.1%. They win five games, 10%. They win four, but, uh, you know, there's an 85% chance, according to Bart Torvik, that they win three or fewer.
0: Wow. See, I would not have thought four was that high, given that they really suck. Uh-huh. But they do still have to play Butler, and i think they're going to beat butler. butler is just horrendous at basketball. um anyway, um that's who Xavier's playing this week. Um uh, Brad, i mean, a couple questions here. First of all, did that drinking fountain deserve it? Yes. Okay. That's a open and shut case. Uh, why is Xavier so low in the net?
1: Maybe expand that's, on this one. That's less open and shut because right now UConn, Marquette, and Creighton are all well ahead of Xavier in the net. UConn's at seventh, Marquette's 14th, Creighton is 16th. And if you look like at what you would consider resume numbers, X has seven Q1 wins. That's three more than any of the other three teams. They're four and O in Q2. Every other team has a Q2 loss except Marquette. Um, and X only has the one Q3 Loss. So initially, if you're going like a strength of record kind of thing, Xavier looks better. The reason they're so much lower in the net is because the net uh, heavily weights efficiency and Xavier does not blow people out. So their efficiency does not look very good because um, they don't run up the numbers in. Games against teams like Georgetown, basically, um, obviously, the St. John's game helped and that was reflected when they jumped uh, both in the net a little bit and in Ken Palm back up to 21st. But you have to really hammer teams for your efficiency to look good. And obviously, the more efficiently you play, the more likely that is to happen. The one thing that's killing Xavier there, obviously, is their defense. It sucks. Um, Xavier's defense is just really bad. um, And that keeps their efficiency margin low. And also, that DePaul loss really hurts them in the net. Um, Connecticut, uh, Marquette, and Creighton all have. Q1 losses, but none of them to a team as pathetic as DePaul. Uh, Creighton lost to Nebraska. Marquette lost to Wisconsin. And Connecticut's worst loss, I believe, is to a top-100 team as well. Um, So they just – yeah, Connecticut's worst loss is to St. John's. So it's not close to the same. If you lose to DePaul, which is a terrible, terrible team, that's going to have a serious impact – Um, something that the committee uses to sort teams. So that's why Xavier is not quite as high in the net. Um, It just basically comes down to defense and DePaul.
0: Gotcha. So um, the takeaway, don't lose to DePaul.
1: Yes. Mm. That was a bad Mm. idea when we did that thing. Mm. We should not have done that.
0: Man, I'll tell you what. As I was watching that game, I was like, hashtag good loss, guys. But I guess it wasn't. Um, So we've got a a few questions here. We've got one from uh, Dan Platt. Uh, Is Xavier the best basketball team in Cincinnati that no one knows about? Is local media switching directly from football to baseball? And to be honest, um, I mean, before we kind of get into the meat of this question, I don't know why they would switch directly to baseball, because (laughs) the Reds are going to be bad this year, and they're not even going to try to win and um yeah so i guess you can hope that maybe a couple of the prospects you know end up coming up so that you have something to be excited about but like i don't know i don't think they'll bring up ellie de la cruz this year because they want to try and uh you know control his service time so it seems like there's not a lot to look forward to for baseball in cincinnati to be honest with you dan um, better weather, I guess, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, are, are people sleeping on Xavier? Um, obviously they're the best basketball team in Cincinnati because, um, they beat the University of Cincinnati. So, uh, are, are, are people sleeping on Xavier a bit, Joel?
2: I mean, I think so. I don't take in a whole lot of Cincinnati media except for the Xavier-focused ones. So, you know, I can tell you, Adam Baum isn't. He's uh, hes Clementined up and ready for this team to rock and roll. Um, you know, they're for whatever reason, they've never quite been the headline brand I think that they should be. They keep winning exciting games in an exciting basketball conference. I'm obviously pretty biased towards Xavier. So I think that everybody should cover them all the time. And uh, and we'd have lots of great stuff to read. But, um, you know, the reality is that all Xavier can do is go out there and win the games that they're uh, they're scheduled to play and let the, uh, let the chips fall where they may. So if teams want to sleep on these six dudes plus an injured Zach Fremantle, then let them. And, you know, come tournament time when Xavier's making a push for the second weekend. Um, and there's only 16 teams left, then I think they'll get the coverage that they deserve.
1: Uh, Brian, you said that they were the best basketball team in Cincinnati because they beat UC, but we didn't schedule Cincinnati Claremont or Cincinnati Christian this year. So, I mean, that's, you know, we assume they're the best team in there, but we got to shout out, you know, Claremont could really have a tough squad. I haven't heard a lot about them, but they could be flying under the radar as well. Maybe, maybe Dan's onto something here, and people just aren't covering these Cincinnati teams as much as they should be.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, obviously we're scared of those teams, but um, you know, I don't. <laughs> I think that as far as the the headline teams in Cincinnati, Xavier has proven to be the best, also because UC is just not very good this year. Um, we've got one from at Birds and Four. That uh, if Jerome keeps improving as he has, um, what do we do with the starting lineup when Zach's healthy again? Do we go with Zach's offensive output or Jerome's defensive abilities? So, Joel, I mean, Zach Fremantle is supposed to be back at some point this year. Um, Coach Miller seems certain he'll be back at some point this season. What does Xavier's rotation look like when he comes back? Does uh, Jerome Hunter have an uptick in minutes after what he's shown these last couple games?
2: I think he will, and I think there's a couple factors in that. The first is that Zach is not going to come back um, in shape to play 30 or 35 minutes a game. It is tough to stay basketball fit uh, when you can't play basketball every day, so he's going to have to be eased back in. Um, I think the offense-defense comparison here is a little bit of a false dichotomy. Jerome Hunter has a 121.7 O rating in league play, which is actually higher than Zach Fremantle's. Um, Obviously, Zach's usage rate is higher, but not exceptionally. Uh, Jerome's is right about 20%, which if you divide the possessions by the five dudes on the floor, is about average. one thing Jerome does really well is get the ball on play on plays that weren't called for him. Not that he's like out there intercepting passes. He gets the (laughs) offense blast. Um, Huge, huge harvester of of garbage buckets. Uh, He got some, he got his number called a handful of times in the last couple of games and, uh, you know, produced out of that. But I think Something to circle on Hunter is that he was 5-12 of 12 from the line against Providence and St. John's combined, and that's from a guy who has been an excellent free-throw shooter throughout the year. So I think the, uh, the huge leap in minutes has probably drained his legs a little bit. Uh, the other thing is that Zach, um, you know, he's not the great kind of wall-up, hold Bryce Hopkins to an over from the floor defender that uh, Jerome is but he is the best defensive rebounder on the team and the best defensive rebounder in the league. And uh, force and missed shots is great, but you're not done on defense until your team has the ball. That's kind of high-level analysis people come to us for. While the other team has the ball, you're still on defense. And uh, Jerome is not a very good defensive rebounder. Uh, He hits the boards slightly better than Sule Boom does on the defensive end. But not a, no, I'm sorry. He's got a lower defensive rebounding percentage than Sule boom. Zach Fremantle, I think, is a uh, is an asset just for that. Um, when the ball comes off the rim, he is hunting it. Both Jerome and uh, Jack Nungie are great offensive rebounders, but Zach kills a lot of possessions, grabbing the ball off the glass. So, um, I think we'll see an expanded role for Jerome, especially when uh, when Fremantle's just easing back in. I think we might also see a little bit more uh, Fremantle-Hunter duo to get Nunji a little bit of rest. But, um, you know, it's never good to lose one of your best players, but I think Xavier's making the best of it by uh, really expanding Hunter's role, and I think he has risen to the challenge.
1: I think the idea of Jerome Hunter running around intercepting passes that were supposed to go for somebody else and scoring is hilarious, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Like, Nunji gets ready to post up. He flashes and cut in front of it, grabs it, and lays it up while, like, everybody looks really confused. That would be super funny if he started doing that.
2: And he's grabbing right. the ball. He's like, check my O rating. This is a good play.
1: Yeah. And then, like, after
0: he scores, he just turns to Nunji and gives him the, the two-whittle celebration, you know? <laughs> Hold me, Jack.
2: And uh-huh. then runs into the stands and punches
1: someone. Yeah. <laughs> No, you have to do that so one of your teammates can score. It's a distraction technique.
0: Well, maybe Nunji can be designated puncher. Jerome's got it handled. Anyway, uh, we got one from uh, A Final Four. Who's the most J.P. McHugh-like player in the Big East and the country? It feels like we don't have a good villain to root against. So, Brad, I mean, you have an answer here. Is it for the Big East or for the country? Because I've got a slam dunk answer for the most J.P. McHugh-like player in the country.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I'll go Big East then, and I was going to go Donovan Klingon um, because he's like, for one, he he seems to have the attitude of somebody who thinks he's a lot better than he actually is. Um, I also don't know how you can be seven-two and look dumpy, but he has managed that. Uh, and it, I don't know. Both times we've played Connecticut, he's just really annoyed me, so I find him very annoying. I think this question is a little unfair to JP. Um, that's I was going to get into that because he was an excellent player and a lot of his negative interactions were not started by him. He certainly was not afraid of rising to the occasion. Once he had been aggrieved or felt he had been aggrieved, but I don't recall a lot of times where he was the one who started it Um he tended to play until somebody gave him a reason to like go gator chomp in their faces, or throw down a dunk. Last time ran out at Butler, or taunt the student section after he did the tip dunk at Seton Hall. But all these things had been precipitated, I think, by somebody else. I don't. It could be my rose-colored JP glasses, but I think there were a lot of games where he just kind of played some basketball. And Donovan did not do that because he's a big turd. I
2: think JP. First of all. Uh, Zach Freeman got a technical for accurately describing Donovan Klingon, but he wasn't wrong. Um, JP was a very expressive guy when it went well. He just, it showed all over his face. I think of the uh, McCura heat check shot where he hit it and he was just like beside himself with glee coming back down the court. And I don't think he was taunting anybody. I think those were the emotions he was feeling and they were coming out on his face. And I think people took umbrage to that, which leads me to the second half of my JP Scattering report. And that is Big Ears. That guy was ready to hear something and ready to uh, turn it into something. So I don't know if he always intentionally started things, uh, but in the words of DMX, with JP, something little becomes something major, and he was always looking for a uh, looking for a reason, if you will. Now here's
0: where because. College basketball villains, I mean, they've been all through the years, and typically it's someone who plays for Duke. I don't I don't know that JP was necessarily a villain because he liked getting a rise out of people. I think JP did a lot of what he did because he thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> um, you know, gator chomping at the Wisconsin fans, I think he just found that pretty funny, um, knowing it would irritate them, but I think he mostly did it to entertain himself, you know? And there's a man who plays college basketball right now who uh, opposing fans seem to hate and who does seem to play up to uh, entertain himself. And that is Estonian sharpshooter, Kirk Carissa, Um, (laughs) plays for Arizona. Uh, A lot of Pac-12 fans don't like him. A lot of fans in general don't like him. But this dude, uh, I think... um, finds it pretty funny to make people mad at him and so he does it a lot Uh, i'm just gonna go through these are statistical comparisons but it's also kind of striking how many of kirk reese's best comparisons on ken palm i totally despise so his top comparisons is actually 2016 miles davis i'll hear no bad things about 2016 miles davis a saint Um, but then we got jordan bohannon (laughs) uh (laughs) We got Kevin Pangos, <laughs> Bronson Caning, Colin Gillespie, London Perantes, and uh, then we circle back around with Sterling Gibbs, who who punched Ryan Archie Diacono. So, same. Thing. <laughs> uh, anyway, but that is like a who's who of people that I just love. Uh, so, my answer here is Kirk Crease, because I think to opposing fans he's a villain, but I think to his fans and people who like him. He just kind of does things to entertain himself, which is where I think JP fell. He wasn't like Marshall Henderson was trying to make people mad because Love that dude making people mad was what he did. I think JP was just trying to entertain himself. And that's the vibe I get from Kirk Risa. Um, Did blow out his ankle, posted a picture on Twitter, and it's like, looks like you should amputate, but I'm going to play in a basketball game anyway. Uh, We got one from uh, Big East Barroom, which if you haven't listened to their their interview with Colby Jones, I I highly recommend it. They um, go behind the scenes a little bit with Colby, and um, it's always just nice to hear what Colby has to say. Um, So who's the most important player to Xavier's success? Feels like there could be six answers to this question. Um, So I don't know who in Xavier's rotation they're leaving out. Probably does, Claude. Uh, But Joel, who is the most important player to Xavier's success this year?
2: Uh, There's actually only one answer, and it's Sule Boom. Um, I see the argument for some other guys, Uh, certainly Zach Fremantle uh, uses a lot of possessions and uses them well and is the team's best defensive rebounder. Uh, Jack Nungy is actually the second most accurate three point shooter in the entire league right now. Kobe Jones does a little bit of everything. Um, Jerome Hunter has just really really lined up his uh his value over the last couple of games and his fouls per 40s back down not only under five but under four um wow i know adam conkle's a guy who can shoot the eyes out of the ball and isn't afraid of the big moment uh but sule is second in the league in minutes percentage he's top 100 in the nation in minutes percentage sixth in the league in O rating but where he really shines is that uh his assist rate is 23.6%, which is 10th in the league. And his turnover rate is 9.2. And that is, uh, that's a turnover rate you usually see from like a spot-up shooter. There is not anyone who spends as much time with the ball in his hands as Sule Boom does uh, that turns it over less. He, I mean, just... Sean Miller's going to ride this dude until the wheels fall off. Um, I was glad to see he finally got a game where he played under 30 minutes in the blowout of St. John's. Um, But he does everything you need your point guard to do. He does it really well. Uh, He protects the ball. He can shoot. He can get to the line where he's more or less automatic. But, um, you know, Des Claude is our our nominal backup point guard. His assist rate is 12.6 in conference games. Which is not very good. Uh, Colby Jones is the next best assist guy in conference games, and his turnover rate is more than double what Sule's is. Um, you know, he is the guy. Everybody else has uh, a skill set we can cobble together from the spare parts of other people. Uh, certainly, Zach Fremantle going down is not a good thing for Xavier, but they can kind of shuffle the back cards to the front and the front cards to the back and move things all around and have. Uh, have some cover for that. We have no cover for Sule, which is why he plays so much. And he should be wrapped in bubble tape and carried around like uh, on one of those chairs that four people carries. There's probably a name for that. Uh, that old fashioned royalty used to have. He is just the uh, the linchpin of this team. He's he's the guy. Xavier cannot go on without him.
0: Um, speaking of playing a lot of minutes, we're going to take a quick aside here, because uh, this past weekend I got to witness the nation's leader in minutes uh, practice his craft. And let me tell you, it was astonishing. And uh, I was left uh, astounded and flabbergasted. It's it's Daryl Banks, the third he plays for St. Bonaventure. If that name is familiar, it's because uh, he dropped um, 27 points on Freaking Kentucky last year in the NCAA tournament for St. Peter's. Um, it's that dude. Um, so anyway, they were playing UD. Uh, he plays for St. Bonaventure now. And uh, yeah, it was the 14th time in 24 games that he has not subbed out of the game a single time, uh, wow. <laughs> which was crazy because he shot two of 10 from the floor. And with 10 minutes left in the go- game, he had not scored yet. <laughs> Uh but then Anthony Grant flipped his lid off o- over a call. Uh Daryl knocked down both free throws and then the next play was drawn to him. He was hacked shooting a three, knocked down three more free throws. It was a five-point trip on free throws. And um Anthony Grant, is he a good coach? Stood no, there no. Looking flabbergasted the rest of the game because um he's not a good coach. And Dayton lost, which made me immensely happy. Um So anyway, that's my aside on Daryl Banks III. Uh, You keep plugging away, buddy, uh, because your coach is never going to take you out, so you have no other option. Uh, We have one from x fan Dan. Hypothetically, season ends today, and Xavier lands on the three or four seed range as projected for the tournament. Let's say, hypothetically, two, we are matched up against a mid-major in round one, which It'd be a mineral major if you're a three or four seed. Which ones pose the bigger biggest threat or would be a matchup nightmare for us? Joel, go ahead.
2: Um, I First of all, I think the funniest would be is if College of Charleston lost a couple more games but won their tournament. And uh, they were like uh, 13 or 14, and we got to play them. We got a little Sean, Sean Miller on Pat Kelsey action. I think that one favors Xavier Carl. College of Charleston plays fast and shoots a lot of threes. What they don't do is make a lot of threes. Um, a team that scares me a bit uh, is Oral Roberts. They're projected on the 12 line right now, uh, but stranger things have happened than them dropping or Xavier dropping. They shoot a ton of threes and they're 11th in the nation in success. Additionally, they have Max Acemas, who spells his name Ab-mas, Um I think that's a transliteration error I don't think we have the character for the second letter of his last name uh, in the English language, and I know that's what you guys tune in to hear. Um, He he is a lightning-quick scoring guard with range on top of range, um, which accurately describes everybody who's cut Xavier open for like 25 points this year. Um, I would not want our tournament to be predicated on our ability to stop him from scoring. Um, Or Roberts is not a great defensive team. I think this would end up being a shootout, which I'd rather see a blowout. Um, The other team that kind of concerns me down there uh, is Liberty. They're currently projected to be a 13. Uh, They shoot the ball really well. Half their their shots come from behind the arc. They shoot um, 36.9% from deep, which isn't elite, but it's still very, very good. Uh, 43% of their points come come on three-pointers. That's fourth-highest in the nation. Uh, Xavier, if you guys have tuned in at all this year, you know does not have a very good three-point defense. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things in March Madness, a team gets hot for a game or two and goes on a run, and everybody's like, oh, hooray, a Cinderella. And it really only hurts if it's your team that they did it against. And Liberty is the kind of team that certainly has that capacity. Um, so I wouldn't mind ducking them in the first round. The other teams, um, it's kind of a, a smattering of what you usually expect out of mid-majors. I mean, uh, Drake is okay-ish. Southern Miss I don't think is. Uh, there are a couple teams that are kind of in the in the 50s of the Ken Palm that might drop to the 13 line uh, that you'd want to keep an eye out for. Um, but the rest, it's like your Utah Valleys, your Southern Misses teams. They're kind of romping through mediocre to bad conferences. Um, the only other thing I would have to add is that Utah Valley is coached by Mark Madsen. And I know what you're thinking is it that Mark Madsen, MMA fighter? No, it's not. It's actually a guy who played for Stanford and the LA Lakers. Um, he is now head coach at Utah Valley. So um, just to recap, I'm I'm hoping we play college of Charleston. Cause I think that would be funny provided that we win uh, or Roberts, if they drop would, would horrify me. And I don't think Liberty is
1: a very good matchup for Xavier either. I think Toledo would be a bit of a problem too. If they can uh, they're on a seven game winner right now, they're just behind Akron and Kent in the Mac. Um, and they've got a really, really good offense. And Uh, They play defense like they can't wait to be playing offense again. I think that could turn into some ludicrous kind of 95 to 88 game. Um, And I'd like to avoid them because they get they don't turn the ball over and they're going to get a good shot. And odds are they're going to make it Um, whether they shoot inside or outside the arc. They could be a team that they're going to give somebody problems if they can get in the tournament. Um, And I would just as soon avoid them. Uh, Bri, who picked Mark Madsen? in that Rhode Island-Stanford game?
0: No, he um, physically assaulted Gatino Mobley and got the ball and scored, breaking hearts of everyone who basically Absolutely. isn't Joel because Joel had picked Stanford to win the game and everybody else would pick URI. Um, but it was clearly a foul, and Gatino um, Mobley was obviously in control of the basketball and mark madsen just slapped him across both arms but you know anyway i would be concerned um here's who i'm not concerned about cal baptist uh you know you're saying xavier better not draw an evangelical school in the first round but if it's cal baptist we've got him handled (laughs) uh so (laughs) take that one to the bank anyway uh I would be concerned uh, if Xavier faced North Texas because North Texas has a guy named Tyler Perry um, which he can play all the roles at the same time. Um, He's unstoppable. (laughs) I'm not concerned about that. I'm just dumb. Anyway, (laughs) I agree. Oral Roberts, not them. Please. Uh, Not only because they would be a problem but it would also ruin my enjoyment of the time they beat ohio state if they came back and did the same thing to us um let's go ahead and uh cue the theme music for xavier player of the week and that was too close by next because this week it's too close to (laughs) call folks and we are split on this
2: (laughs) Oh, oh I, can't completely, I completely missed the point of that song, Ben. I thought you was yeah, too close to something else the highlights.
0: It's about making tough decisions. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is about that. But... <laughs> anyway,
1: Brad, who do you got? <laughs> uh, well, for none of the reasons sung about in that song, uh, thank the good Lord, Though so that does remind me of the time that we played Middletown and that guy had a bit of a too close situation going on. But uh, I went with Jerome Hunter this week, actually, because Xavier was kind of had their backs up against the wall trying to figure out what was going to happen without Zach Fremantle. Uh, where would the rotation get extended and everything? And I will willingly admit that Jerome Hunter's uh, stats were not the most impressive of anybody you could pick this week. But I thought the way he stepped in. And got the job done when Xavier really needed somebody to come in and keep the level of performance high, not turn this into a Xavier was doing well until Zach Fremantle got hurt kind of thing. Um, I went with Hunter in large part because of the job he did on Hopkins against Providence and just how relentless he was on the offensive glass that game. Um I, they looked physically frightened of him by the end of that game until he finally cramped up and had to go out. But, I mean, he just attacked the boards. And then for that last play, he would not let himself not be on the floor for it. He kind of swatted away the the training staff and one-legged his way out there so he could harass the inbounder. Um, I thought he had an excellent week, really stepped up where we needed somebody and kind of is – quietly in his own way having a great season but the the two games he played this week um both of them were higher minutes than he played at any point prior in the year he was great so i went with jerome hunter
0: okay um joel who do you have
1: yeah i really
2: wanted to pick jerome hunter for all of the reasons brad uh just mentioned but the uh the 44 17 and nine that Jack Nungi put up in these combined two games just, just spoke to me. Uh, only three turnovers, which he matched with three blocks and threw in a steal for Grins and Gigs on the defensive end. He was seven and nine for deep from deep in these two games. Um, just a dominant performance. Everything you could ask a big man to do aside from erase Bryce Hopkins from the game because Jerome Hunter was already doing that. 39 minutes against Providence, and he is a, a big dude to be playing that many minutes. And he was just absolutely essential in that game. Then he came back out uh, against a slightly uh, slightly lighter load of minutes to play and just decimated St. John's, too. Uh, they ran guys at him. He passed well. Uh, you know, just did it all. This was a, an, an excellent week. For my man Big Sack Jack, and uh, I think he's a deserving winner just from the monster stat line he put up in a couple big wins for X.
0: And he did do uh, a good job on on Soriano, that I think <clears throat> Xavier really seemed to key in on stopping him, um, and that slowed Saint John John's down a lot. Um, so he did have a, a excellent week. I have gone uh, once again with Colby Jones because. I think throughout the two games he was <clears throat> consistently excellent. Um, his stat line against St. John's is a lot gaudier: 19 points, eight rebounds, four assists, and he shot seven of eight from the floor. Um, it's it, it's really tough to shoot better than seven of eight if you only take eight shots. Um, there's only one way to do that, and that's make all eight of them. So, uh, but I thought against Providence. In the second half, there was a stretch where Providence was kind of trying to put the game away and he took it over and scored seven straight for Xavier to keep them in it and uh, help get them back into that game late. I thought he was excellent when Hunter had to go out. He took Hopkins, who um, he gives up an inch, but he also gives up 15 pounds on um, and he kept him out of the lane, kept him from uh, getting to where he wanted to be. So I thought he um, turned in a couple of really strong performances this week again. And again, just did a little bit of everything for Xavier and made all, um, well, mostly the right decisions this week. So I've gone with him. Um, So our final quick hit here, um, and I'm going to be honest, I read an article and I put this in because I've got a really good one. But what athlete has the weirdest post playing career life? Um, Brad
1: why don't you go ahead This was a tough one for me Um, I thought of a lot of guys who had weird um, Playing career lives Adrian Graves jumped to mind for me But if we will expand Athletes to include boxers I remember growing up to me George Foreman was a boxing guy Um, And if anybody Has heard of him now They would probably think of him as the grill guy And he kind of transitioned to that um, Probably when I was in high school He just quit being an athlete and then was a guy who made grills that you could make a really good panini or a really bad burger on. Um, We had one where we worked and kind of cooked everything on it most days. Uh, When we were all growing up and it was a George Foreman grill, everybody knows what a Foreman grill is now. And I don't think a lot of people at this point would realize that he used to be like the heavyweight champion of the world and was a major athlete name. He's just the grill guy now. That's who I came up with. This was, this was a tough one because people have done weird things. I mean, Kurt Schilling, for his post-career playing life, uh, made himself completely unlikable. So that's also kind of weird.
0: He also completely thanked the video game company. He wasn't super likable when he was playing. <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. Can we? Can I just go on record and say the bloody sock thing? Like, he embellished that hugely to try and add to his legend. Um, which he needed to because he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, anyway, Joel, who do you have?
2: I, I really want to hear yours because I got a couple good ones, but I don't want to steal your thunder if you've done some research on this.
0: Okay. I'm going with uh, Andre Sherla, who uh, had the game winning assist in the 2014 World Cup final. He, um, I mean, he was a huge deal. He then retired from soccer at 29, and then he popped back up on my feed because he uh, retired and then. Uh, ended up getting in with this, uh, Dutch motivational speaker slash fitness guru named Wim Hof. And so a couple of weeks ago, Andre Sherla uh, hiked up a mountain in, uh, it's called the Iceman Challenge. He hiked up a mountain in, I think it's Uzbekistan. Um, the temperature was negative two Fahrenheit. Uh, the wind was blowing sixty miles an hour most of the time, and they they had a fifty-two hundred foot elevation hike, which they did in shorts, socks, shoes, and gloves. Oh, and they were wearing hats, but no shirts. So uh, if you look this dude up, they're just they're shirtless, hiking up a mountain in the middle of winter with the temperature below zero and the wind blowing 60 miles an hour. Um so that is a weird twist for a guy who like 9 years ago was I mean not at the top I don't think anybody said would say he was the best player in the world but he was a huge deal and then now he's hiking up a mountain shirtless. <laughs>
2: I think I heard of Vim Hof because doesn't he believe he can control the temperature of his own body through the power of his mind? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's him. I've heard of
0: okay, that guy. Do the, they do the Iceman Challenge, which uh, I'll be honest. It looks like something I would never want to participate in under any circumstance ever. Not if you were 100 years old. Not if I was 100 years old. <laughs> anyway, Joel, go ahead.
2: Okay, I got a couple. And then you guys can tell me which one's weirder. Um, Todd McCullough a footnote to a footnote when you talk about NBA history is now a championship level pinball player. So make of that what you will. Yeah. He said he gets more nervous playing pinball than he'd ever did playing basketball. That's Probably he's good at pinball. <laughs> Probably being seven foot 280 isn't as big an asset. Um, and then the other one is Bison Deli, who um, I think We've touched on a couple of times, he like dated Madonna reportedly, uh, got into uh, riding catamarans when he was in in the NBA, and then um, after what turned out to be his final career game, for reasons that will become clear very quickly, um, he was aboard a catamaran with his girlfriend, the skipper, and his brother, Miles DeBoard, and uh, only Miles DeBoard came back. And Miles DeBoard intentionally overdosed on insulin and went into a coma afterwards. Um, They managed to save his life and bring him back to consciousness, after which he told several bizarre and conflicting stories about what happened to everybody else. But uh, the bottom line was um, DeBoard said he and Dele got into an argument. Uh, During that argument, somehow Dele's girlfriend was accidentally killed. Uh, Then either Dele or DeBoard intentionally killed the the skipper of the catamaran. Then they threw the bodies overboard. Then something happened to to Dele. Uh, Maybe self-defense, maybe uh, killed himself out of, you know, grief or regret. And he ended up disappearing as well. And Miles DeBoard came back alone. So um, I think that is weird. And I think that was technically his post-playing career life because he uh, wasn't picked up in free agency after that. And it's just a, like a really bizarre story. that nobody, uh, nobody knows really what happened or why. And uh, then it just kind of went off the radar.
0: Okay, the final thing we're going to do here, we're going to circle back to our predictions that we put on our whiteboard. Uh, to see how we're all doing. So, uh, Brad, your prediction was Gonzaga will beat St. Mary's in both games by a total of 30. How'd
1: that go? Um, I mean, they could still beat them by 40 in the second game, and I'd be right. Okay. Um, Jamal, your prediction was
0: Kentucky was going to destroy Kansas.
2: Yeah, so here's the thing. Um, that, That was based on the idea that Kansas can't stop Oscar Shibwe, uh, which they couldn't um, because they don't have anybody near his size. What I failed to take into account was the fact that uh, John Calipari can stop Oscar Sheebway and Kentucky stopped giving him the ball,
0: and Kansas ran away with that game. Okay, uh, Braden's prediction was Georgetown was going to lose out. What an idiot. My prediction was Georgetown would lose out until they won at Butler. So uh we're all <laughs> doing bad, guys. <laughs> we should stop <laughs> predicting Erase the whiteboard. We uh we have all blown it.
1: Hey, so I'm uh big 40 point win and I'm right there.
0: Well technically mine just says Georgetown wins at Butler, which could technically be true. But I did say that Georgetown Roulette would end at Butler and um, Georgetown Roulette is always already over, as is Louisville Roulette, which is wild that Louisville won a basketball game. Um, Anyway, that is uh, it for us this week. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening. Xavier has the midweek off and they'll be back in action on Friday night when they go to the barn to trash Butler and their stupid water fountains. So we will be back with your eyes next week to look back at that one and look ahead at a tough trip to Marquette.